if you have your scriptures, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We are going to be looking at verses 21 through 26 this morning. So before we get started, let's have a word of prayer and then we can spend time in Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Lord, help us as we come to Your Word. We certainly need Your Spirit to open our eyes to see. Uh, We need You to open our hearts and soften our hearts to receive. And Lord, I pray You'll help us to see it for the intent that You are presenting and what Your goals are in this text. And I pray that You will um, help us to acknowledge that on one hand, but on the other hand, be transformed by it. I pray You'll help us to see the beauty of Your Gospel in light of what Your message is. Um, So glorify Yourself this morning. In Your name I pray. Amen. So we're in Matthew chapter 25, verses 21 through 26. I was thinking about it this week. Uh, it is, uh, it, anytime you approach the Scriptures as a pastor and you're presenting the truth of the Scriptures to someone, whether it's a group or an individual, I find it to be a very daunting task. And the reason why I say it's a fi- I find it to be a very daunting task is because I'm a finite, sinful, fallen creature. And I'm trying to tell people what I think the Scriptures, what God is trying to communicate. Um, I was thinking about this week. It's especially daunting when I am trying to preach a message on Jesus' message. <laughs> That's kind of uh, an interesting perspective. It's one thing to preach a message on a text, but it's just the idea that Jesus got up and preached a message, a sermon. And I'm trying to preach a sermon on a sermon as if I could somehow do better than what Jesus did. Does that make sense? It's it's actually kind of an awkward and intimidating uh, perspective that I find myself in as we're working our way through Matthew 5-7. through By way of background, as we continue to go through, I want to remind you as we've done every week, I would argue that the primary interpretive key for Matthew 5 through 7 is Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. So I want to remind you real quickly, Matthew 4:17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now I know I've been over this before. I want to review it in case you forgot it or didn't hear it, or whatever the case may be. Uh, The text again says in 4.17, from that time Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Looking at the second half of the statement by Jesus in 4.17, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's referring to himself. When he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is the king of the kingdom of heaven, and he's at hand, he's there, he's in their midst. And the prophecies of the Old Testament is that when the, when that the Messiah comes, he's going to come bringing blessing to those who are faithful and curses to those who are are not faithful. And so, at this point in time, Jesus starts in the first part of his statement is that that Matthew makes is that Jesus was saying in his message, he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that means, if I could just sum it up, what you should expect to see in his messages is what. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? 
That's what he said. That's the two points, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it should be expected that when you look from here on out that you should see, repent, and number two, again, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Now he'll say it in a variety of different ways, right? He'll say at times that he, he is the Messiah. He is, he is the Son of God. He will talk about himself being the Son of Man. Those are all ways of talking about his godness, his kingness, his representation of the entirety of the kingdom of God. And so he's going to call them to repentance. Why? Because he's here. And the reason why he's calling them to repentance is because they, they need to repent because they have not been faithful. They have not kept the law. They have not followed God's commands. They have not measured up to God's standards. And His standards, again, are what? Absolute perfection. It's not give it the college try, as a lot of pastors will try to say that we need to try to follow these things. That's not His standard. His standard is absolute perfection. And what he's doing then in chapter 5, if 4.17 is the primary key of the, of, the, of the sermon, it's not the only key, but it's the primary key of the sermon, as well as what takes place after the sermon in all of his ministries, you would expect that he is going to continue to say those two things, wouldn't you? Especially if it says, At, from that time, Jesus began to do that. Well, then you'd expect him to do that. You'd expect to see it everywhere. So when we read what he says, we should think about what he says in the Gospel of Matthew from here on out from those two perspectives. He's introducing the call to repentance and he's introducing himself. Those are the two things he's going to do. And they're going to intertwine constantly. But as I've said to so many people at this point in time, if, you, if I walked up to you and I said to you, you need to repent, your natural response, whether it's inside you or out of your mouth, would be what? Yes, what? Repent from what? Does that make sense? To say repent begs the question, doesn't it? Repent from what? And so what we find in Matthew 5-7 through 7 is primarily the explanation of what they need to repent from and that's what we've discovered already every step of the way have we not the call is to repent from and it's also a call to repent to the kingdom of heaven that is the king of the kingdom of heaven so up to this point in time we've been through what has been called the beatitudes we've talked about that already we're not going to revisit that we've talked about verses 13 uh, or verse 13, uh, the, so being the salt of the earth and how that is actually a call to repentance more so than it is a command. It is, as a matter of fact, there is no command in verse 13. It's a declaration, you are, and we talked about that already. And of course, that again is showing them they, they need to repent. 14 through 16 of chapter 5, again, for, verse 14, the statement is you are the light of the world, not the call to be the light of the world in this text. The first command does not show up in verse, until verse 16. And, and, and I would argue 
that even that command, although it may have, it may carry weight as a command that someone who is repentant should follow, for the most part, it's there showing the absolute perfection of, of God's standard and the need for absolute perfection, and they have not measured up. Yes, there are commands in the Scriptures that we will fail at. The entire Old Testament law is commanded, is it not? And yet, what will happen to every single person who tries to follow it with absolute perfection? They will fail. It's impossible to measure up to that. From there, last week we looked at verses 17 through 20, where Jesus declares that he that he did not come to fulfill the law, or he did not come to cancel out the law, but to fulfill it. And then he makes it very clear what he's talking about here, and that is. Your standards have to be, verse 20, absolute perfection. It's got to be better than the scribes and Pharisees. And they're doing everything they possibly can, right? And they can't measure up. And that's verse 20. So this, the, 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 the point from 5-3 all the way through verse 20 is showing them what they need to repent of. Nothing changes, and yet everything changes from here. Because now, for the, next, for the rest of chapter 5, what Jesus is going to do, and what He's doing every step of the way up to this point in time is this. He's telling them what they need to repent of. But then He keeps zeroing in tighter and tighter and tighter. Verses 3-12 through 12 is kind of really broad brush stuff, isn't it? And then 13 and 14, in a real way, it's kind of esoteric, isn't it? It's, it's not real concrete. Verses 17 through 20, again, is kind of broad brushed. But from 21 all the way through to the end of chapter 5, in case people are missing it, because we tend to give passes to ourselves, don't we? And we really do. And that has never been changed. What Jesus does from. 21 to the end of chapter 5 is he's going to now start zeroing in on really big ticket items, specific items, specific declarations in the Old Testament law. And he's going to show them that their very thought process about the very specific statements, commands, and prohibitions in the Old Testament law that their, their very thought process and therefore actions with regard to that thought process of that law, in regard to that law, has been wrongheaded and ends up being their very condemnation, even in the very specific things. So you'll see, even in your headings, most of your texts have, like verses 20 through, 21 through 26 is uh, a discussion on anger, although it's bigger than anger, but you get the idea. Uh, 27 through 30 is on lust. Uh, 31 and 32 is on, a, on divorce. 33 through 37 is about giving or uh, swearing oaths. 38 uh, through 42 is about retaliating. I'm just reading the uninspired headings that are on the text that kind of try to explain within the text. And then verse 43 all the way to. Uh, the end of the chapter is about the need to love your enemies. So what is he doing? He is 
moving away from the specific declar or I'm sorry, the general statements about the law, and he's zeroing in on specific statements about the law. And he's going to show them how even when we get down to the brass tacks, really specific things, when we focus with laser focus on an individual declaration of the law, how miserably every single person has failed. Every single person has failed. Continually failed. Now, let me just say before we jump into the first of these six, uh, five of them, sorry, six, yeah, six. Before we jump into this, this six different categories, we're only going to look at one category today. Please understand, this is not, Jesus is not just giving the six that people typically fail at. All he's doing is he's picking some big ticket items to demonstrate. I mean, he could very well have gone on and on and on and on and chosen law after law after law after law and showed them how they have failed. He chose six big ticket items that tend to embrace everyone in a variety of ways. You may not apply, they may not necessarily apply to everyone, but they apply to almost everyone. Um, for example, the verses 31 and 32 is about divorce. If you're single, it doesn't really apply to you, does it? So it, it, it's, it's a little more specific, but he just pick, it, pick some big ticket items to show the hearer or the reader, as the case may be, how they have all failed. Now, let me, before we actually read uh, 21 through 26, let me just say this real quickly. I want to remind you that what we're seeing so far in Matthew chapter 5 is not how we need to live, which is how almost everybody presents it. But we're seeing in chapter 5 up to this point in time, and it will continue, is this idea, not this is how you need to live, but quite to the contrary, it's showing us what I call the bad news of the good news. I'm going to say it again. It's showing us the bad news of the good news. And I know that sounds really like an incoherent statement. It is not. There is no good news if there's not bad news. Does that make sense? We live in the midst of contrast, and we learn and understand in the midst of contrasts. We cannot comprehend one without the contrast of the other. We can't understand cold unless we know warmth. We cannot understand light unless we understand dark and vice versa. Does that make sense? We cannot grapple with it. But this is more important. This is not just about we cannot understand the good news unless we understand the bad news. It is much more basic than that. You can't even, it's not about understanding only, but is you can't even access or live in the good news, have the good news applied if the bad news isn't understood and agreed to. The bad news desperately must be understood and responded to. If the bad news isn't understood, if the bad news is, is unexplored and unembraced and unacknowledged and then therefore repented of, then there can be no good news. Or to put it a little more specifically, if repentance from sin, bad news, doesn't take place, there is no entrance into good news. There is no avenue 
of entrance into good news. The wall is unsurmountable. Good news is not available. Why? Not in this text. But why is it not available? Because God is a blank God. He's a holy God. He is a jealous God as well. But He's a holy God. There's no unholiness in Him. There's no sin in Him. He cannot look upon sin. He cannot have sin in His presence undealt with, correct? We know that's true. The Scriptures argue that strongly. Which is why Jesus is calling out repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Can't have the good news. Can't have access, entrance into the good news. Can't have the good news applied if bad news isn't understood and if bad news isn't repented of. You can't rep- another, another subset to that is you can't repent of something you don't know anything about. Right? You can't repent of something you don't know anything about. Now I would submit to you, before we get into 21 through 26, this is, and I may have said this before, if, if I have, please bear with me, but I would argue this is probably one of the biggest failures of most gospel presentations today. We dink around with stupid little softball comments about the bad news. And in more liberal circles of Christianity, they deny the bad news completely and they just talk about the good news. And then if it's really into the more liberal ends of Christianity, they even change what the good news is too. But my point is that in a lot of presentations of the gospel, the good news today, the bad news of the gospel, the bad news of the good news is at best broad-brushed and minimally talked about. It certainly is not robustly talked about ever. When you look at the scriptural presentations, Old and New Testaments, you will find bad news is robustly discussed, isn't it? You go to the Old Testament and you look at, at um, let's start from the beginning, the fall. When God comes in to the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve fall, had fallen, does He say, does He just start out by saying, hey, I just want to let you know that I'm going to send a Redeemer. Is that His first statement? Is it his second statement? Is it his third statement? Is it his fourth statement? No, it does come in the end, doesn't it? But what does he do all along before he gets there? It's condemnation, isn't it? It's bad news. And it's robustly presented. Genesis chapter 3. You can't miss it. And then when God sends the prophets to the people, and the few godly judges that are there ministering as well, what do you find? Do you find a broad-brushing, minimizing of the bad news? Ever. It's brutal. It's ugly. It's painful. It's dark. 
It's hopeless. Isn't it? Every single time. And then you get into the New Testament, and what do you find? The same thing. You find Jesus, and He's doing what? He's pulling out all the stops, isn't He? He's not cleaning it up, is He? He's not making it look pretty. He's not, he's not, he's not putting a little flower in the middle of it to make it look prettier, is He? It's painful. Because God's holy. And repentance is necessary. And then Peter. And then Paul. And later, Jude, John. And what do you see? Every single time. The, the bad news of the good news is very, very clearly declared. And it's specifically declared. It's painfully declared. And they don't lighten up, do they? Not ever. And that's what we're finding here as well. The bad news of the good news. Starting in verse 21 of chapter 5. Now we're getting some real specifics. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, You fool! will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you pay the last penny. That's our text this morning. It's an interesting text because I would argue it does not say what you think it says completely. And the reason why it says what you think it says is because we have been steeped in, in I would argue, not correct thinking about this text. First of all, let me just say that on the one hand, Jesus is using an illustration. But, His illustration is absolutely not what the point of the text is. He seems to be saying, the primary thing that seems to be that Jesus is saying is, listen, if, if, if I may just say this, I'm going to jump ahead. If I realize that Charles has something against me, then I should do what? I should go and get it taken care of right away, right? Because if I don't, he's going to take me to court and then I'll go to jail until I pay him back what I owe him. Correct? Does that sound like what he's saying? That's not what he's talking about. That's an illustration. He's using an illustration of that day, and you'll see it as we work our way through it. He's using an illustration of that day but he's talking eschatologically. He's talking about the future judgment. That's where his focus is on. It's about repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is not about the kingdom of man. It's about the kingdom of heaven. 4.17 again. 
He is using an everyday kingdom of man illustration for the purpose of, of emphasizing an eschatological event that will happen. As sure as God exists, it will happen. It's important we understand that. Put that in the back of your mind. He starts out in verse 21. And he says, You have heard it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Stop right there for a second. When he says here, You have heard it was said to those of old, you, you know, if you know the Old Testament, what is he talking about? He's talking about the law. When he says it's been said to those of old, he's talking about Moses and he's talking about the children of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai when they received the Ten Commandments. When they received the law. That's exactly what he's referencing when he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment again. I said it about the what follows, but even here, when it says you'll be liable to judgment, please understand this is one of the keys. I said 417 is a major key. This is a, prime, a, a secondary key. When he says in verse 21, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, he's referencing the continuation discussion of the law. Okay? So all that statement in 21 is connected back to you've heard that it was said to those of old. He's not talking now about what takes place if you murder somebody in Israel, in Jerusalem at 30 A.D. It means that you're going to go to the court. That's not what he's talking about. What he's referencing, he, right in the very beginning, he's been doing all along when he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, law, and whoever murders will be allowed with a judgment which is referencing what? The curse. The curse is listed in the law. Because he, 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 God gave the law, and then after He gave the law, He gave them the blessings and the cursings. If you murder somebody, do you get the blessing or do you get the cursing? You obviously get the cursing, not the blessing. And that's the foundation for this whole discussion. So if you get the who who dishes out, who meets out the curses of the law? God does. Man does not. Now sometimes in the intermediate meeting out of the curses, man is involved, right? Assyria, Babylon, for example. Sometimes God uses, or you can even go closer to the law being given, you have the, um, the, the, the defeat at the, at the little town of Ai because, because Achan took the, the, the stuff that belonged to God, right? And so as a result, 36 people died. So God used means, right, for an intermediate or an intermediary type of judgment, but the, the intermediary or imperfect demonstrations of the curses of the law merely serve to look forward to the absolute, perfect laying down of the curses. Does that make sense? And so in verse 21, when he says, you shall not murder, law, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, it's talking about the curses that are found in the law. Not talking about what, what the human courts would give. And everybody that is hearing the, the, um, 
the message, the sermon that Jesus is preaching would understand that at that point in time. They, they would be saying, okay, thou shalt not murder. Yep, that's there. And the judgment, yep, it's stated in, in Deuteronomy very clearly what the judgment is from God. And you know as well as I do that the people who are hearing Jesus speak at this point in time after being absolutely wrecked in chapter 5, verses 3 through 20, would hear verse 21 and say what to themselves? Good thing I haven't murdered anybody. Maybe I will get blessed instead of cursed. Remember, 3 through 12, is anybody blessed? No, nobody's blessed. Is thir- in 13, anybody blessed there? No, they're condemned. 14 through 16, anybody blessed there? No, they're condemned. 17 through 20, anybody blessed there? No, they're condemned. That's what's happened every step of the way. Correct? Every step of the way. Verse 21, here we are. We're hearers of the sermon that Jesus is preaching on the mount north of Galilee. And we hear Jesus say, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be a recipient of the curses. And we sit there and say, maybe I will be blessed. I haven't murdered anybody. Matter of fact, I haven't even wounded anybody in anger. I haven't even done anything like that. I've not tried to murder. It hasn't even crossed my mind to murder anybody. Wouldn't that be what you'd think if you heard him say that? I haven't murdered anybody. I'm good to go. Maybe I will receive blessing. And Jesus in verse 22 throws in that big word, but which directly connects 21 to 22, but saying that it's not what you think. So in 22, but I say to you, now I just want to stop on that for a second. That's an interesting statement. Did you hear what I just read? Beginning of verse 22. But I say to you, notice the contrast, the contrast of but I say to you is beginning of verse 21. You have heard that it was said. It's a very generic, you've heard that it was said. It's a very generic statement. But in 22, Jesus says, but I say to you. That is a very powerful statement from Jesus. You know what Jesus is saying there? Jesus is saying, I am the judge. This is a judge speaking. Kind of like you go to court, you're standing before a judge, and, and, and the judge says, well, you may, have, you may have heard this, and he quotes the law, but I say to you, and now suddenly what the judge is about to say becomes what? The law, doesn't it? And it's the law applied to you. Make sense? Rightly or wrongly, when the judge says, but I say to you, he's saying, what's going to happen from here on out is my declaration of how the law applies to you, and that is definitive, and that is authoritative. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is declaring himself, in effect, I am judge. I am your judge. And so I'm going to tell you the, the truth of the matter. And so he says this, but I say to you, He's not denying the statement before. 
by any stretch of the imagination, all he's saying when he says, I say to you, what he's saying is, in effect, you didn't understand any of that. And in effect, what he's saying to you, I know, y'all sat, sat there saying, well, I didn't murder anybody, I'm good to go. No, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 22. You've heard it said, but I say to you, and what Jesus is about to declare is, when, when the law said do not murder, the standard is absolute perfection, and it's not merely the activity of what you do with your hands, for example. Because what you do with your hands, whether you stab somebody or whatever the case may be, what you do with your hands is driven by, and this is what Jesus is saying, it's being driven by what you are thinking in your heart. So if you murder somebody physically, it's because you already what? Murder them in your heart. And what Jesus is saying, in effect, even if you never actually murder physically, even if you never take the life of someone else physically, if you do it in your heart, there's no difference. And notice how he describes it. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now I want to pause on that one for a second. We're going to pause on each one of them for a second. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now I want to make a major pause actually on this one because we know, if you're thinking at all, you know in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul makes it pretty clear that not all anger is sinful, right? He says, in your anger, what? Do not sin. Which means it is possible to be angry and what? Not sin. Do we have any evidence of anybody being angry and not sinning in the Scriptures? Well, the easy one is Jesus with whips, right? In the temple. I think He was a little angry, wasn't He? When Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Do you think He was a little angry? I think so. I don't just think so. He was angry. You see that, right? When, and, and you find Paul getting angry at times with people, doesn't he? He gets angry. John gets angry regularly with people. You see that. But wait, he says in verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What, what's the, is there a problem here? No, there's no problem. Again, Paul said, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he wrote the inspired text says, in your anger do not sin. The point is, there is an anger that is sinful and there's an anger, anger that's not sinful. What's the difference between them? Well, let's start with Jesus. What was he angry about in the temple? The disobedience, the dishonoring of, the, of God's temple, which was supposed to be a place of Worship and prayer, and instead they were doing what there? They're they're selling and they're selling sheep. They're just making money. It was just a money making scheme, wasn't it? It was absolutely corrupt. 
So what is Jesus upset about? The dishonoring of the Father, ultimately. Wasn't He? He's absolutely dishon- he saw it as dishonoring God, His Father. When you see other people get angry, their anger, and it's not sinful, every single time, the anger is redemptive. It's for the purpose of redemption. It's the purpose of rescuing. It's the purpose of calling someone to repentance. That's the presentation of the Scriptures every time. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. You know as well as I do that what we just described as what could be called biblical anger is kind of a relatively rare thing. Can we acknowledge that? Kind of a rare thing. We get angry about all sorts of things, don't we? Even if it never expresses itself, we get angry about all sorts of things, don't we? It's not redemptive anger. It's not so that someone would love Jesus, is it? It's for all different other reasons. It could be political. It could be personal. It could be uh, whatever it may be. But it it could be because of traffic. (laughs) It could be anything, right? It is interesting that what Jesus is focusing on is not what we could argue is redemptive anger, anger for the purpose of redemption, but instead he's talking about that vast swath that everyone struggles with. Everyone. And what does he say? I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. I want you to notice what he says here. Let's break it down a little tighter. But I say to you, first of all, very important word, but I say to you that everyone who is angry. You know what he says? You see the word everyone there? Everyone who is angry with his brother. And by the way, his brother is not referring to other Christians. It's more about the brotherhood of humanity in this passage. And more tightly, you could argue it's about, it's about Jew to Jew. But it's probably more even broader than that. Any, any human. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. I want you to notice, it does not say, but everyone who is angry all the time. Does it? It doesn't say everyone who is angry characteristically, does it? It doesn't say everyone who is angry occasionally, does it? It just says everyone who is angry. And the point is, he's talking about every single person who finds themselves angry. Period. At any time. At any time. Is what? Is liable to judgment. Now, it's very easy to look at the text if we just look at it horizontally or from a human standpoint to say, well, they're liable to it in the same way that, let me use the illustration. <clears throat> Let's say I drove to church today, I was running late, and the speed limit was 45 and 724, and I was doing 65. Am I liable for a ticket? What are the chances that I'm going to get a ticket? Not real high. Correct? But I'm liable for it. Does that make sense? That's not what the text is talking about. Because if we think about it, humanly speaking, what do we have? 
I'm, if I drove 65 out of 45 coming here, I'm liable for a ticket. The chances are I'm not going to get a ticket. Why? Because there's probably not going to be a cop there, right? Because cops can't be everywhere. So the chances that there's going to be a cop there is kind of low. So although I'm liable for a ticket, most likely, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to get to church and there's not going to be a ticket in my pocket. Because the cops can't be everywhere at once, right? It's not what the text is talking about. You know why it's not talking about that? Because Jesus said, I say to you, and he's saying it as judge, and he's saying if you are angry with someone else, you're liable to judgment, to being taken to judgment, and who are you going to be taking before? Him. And who is He? He's Jesus. And as Jesus, He is God. And as God, He knows what? He knows a few things, doesn't He? He knows everything. And He sees everything. Does He not? And by the way, if I drive 65 and a 45, people see it, right? Why? Because I'm doing it. But I could be angry and nobody could see it, right? But Jesus sees it. That's the point of the text. And if I'm angry, he's saying to the hearer of his message, he's talking about this, do not murder. And he says, but if you're angry, you're liable to come before not human judge, but God who sees all. And that liable then does not mean you may get caught. It doesn't mean that at all. When he says liable, it means you're going to get caught. And you will be held accountable. So everyone who heard verse 21 and said, Woo! I've never murdered anybody. What just happened? It's called evaporation. Hope evaporated, did it not? What's God's standard again? Absolute perfection. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It goes on in 22, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Now, again, he's playing off of the way things are in Jewish custom, Jewish society. So he's playing off the judgment in the first statement that you are going to go to a judge. The second statement if you insult your brother, you'll be liable to the council referring to the Sanhedrin. You've been, you'd be, uh, you're liable to be drawn in front of the Sanhedrin for doing what? For insulting someone else, right? You're, you're in danger of or liable to be drawn before the council. But is he talking about the Sanhedrin council? No. Again, it's just an illustration. What is the council he's talking about? The Holy Council. Talk about the Trinitarian God. You are, are liable to be drawn or taken before the council. Again, remember I said it's eschatological. Let's talk about ultimate judgment here. Where, and notice what he just did. He first of all talked about something that's internal, right? I'm angry. You may not know it, but I'm angry. But that makes me liable to the judgment. On the other hand, if I let the anger get the best of me, what begins to happen? 
it starts doing what? It starts coming out, right? And I start insulting. Now, I know none of us have ever been angry. I know none of us have ever insulted, right? Anybody. But we know people who have. Right? We know people who have. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Why? Well, what he's arguing, where he's heading towards, you can kind of tell, but even just at this point, insulting is attacking somebody verbally, right? It's attacking somebody verbally. And in effect, interestingly enough, if you did that Jew to Jew, why this was so important, if you did that Jew to Jew, what you in fact are saying when you are insulting somebody, you are saying they're not worthy of something. What are, you not, what are they not worthy of? They are not worthy of covenant loyalty. When you start venting your insults on another person, a fellow member of the covenant, you are saying they're not worthy. And the opposite being, in, by implication, who is worthy of being, being a recipient of the covenant blessings? I am. You're not. I'm insulting you, but the implication is I am worthy. So it's arrogance on both sides. You're, judge, you're putting yourself in a position of judging when that's not your job. That's not your position to be in that position. And you're also making a declaration about yourself that you are worthy of the blessings of the covenant. You are not. When you insult someone else, you demonstrate that you are not worthy in any way, form, or fashion to receive the blessings. And so you will be liable to be brought before the council. And thirdly, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, I want you to understand something because I've heard a lot of people talk about this last statement in 22 and say you should never call someone a fool because of this. Did Jesus ever call someone foolish? He did. He did. Did Paul or any of the other apostles ever call someone foolish or fools? They did. They did. Wait a second. Is Jesus in danger of hellfire? No. You know, when we call someone a fool, you know why we typically call them a fool? Because they don't agree with our perspective on things. Isn't that correct? They don't agree to our standards. They don't think like we do about things. They don't value what we value. And where's the standard? And who's the standard? Now, I'm, I'm saying in the scenario I just described, who's the standard then? I am. What did I just do? I established myself as a standard, therefore I established myself as more importantly, as God. My standard is the standard. Instead, we get caught up in the statement using the word fool, and that's not the point. The point of the text is not, listen, you just got to be careful. We don't want to dumb this down and say, you just got to be careful that we don't, we don't call someone a fool. No, the point is, the point is, in calling, even in the very basic, if I call you a fool, I'm saying something about myself. I'm saying I'm not. Right? 
I'm not. You're less than me. You're, you're much less than me. You're a fool. I'm not. But the biblical storyline is who's a fool? We all are. And people who don't love God naturally. The fool says in his heart there is no God, right? That's what it says. Everyone naturally is a fool. We either acknowledge what God says or what, 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 what is real is that we are trying desperately hard to usurp God. That's what we're doing. We're trying to usurp God. And that's why he says in this three-step three statement, uh, statement that he makes in 22 and 23, I'm sorry, 22, but I say to you, everyone who is angry will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Some of your translations may talk about it as Gehenna. And again, it, Gehenna was an illustration. It was a valley outside of Jerusalem where the fires were burning all the time. It started in Josiah's day and it burned all the time. They burned refuse there. And the point of, of it as an illustration was to, to describe to the hearer that what's going to happen if this is you is you'll be liable to that. Not that literally, but something much worse than that. But that's the best illustration that could be given to illustrate the point. And liable again does not mean maybe if you get caught. You are caught. And I am caught. Everyone is caught. And what is Jesus doing here? He's saying, again, verse 20, you have heard it said, that th- uh, said to those of old, you shall not murder. What Jesus is saying, but I want you to understand what murder really is. That's what he's saying. I want you to understand what murder really is. Because the whole point of this is that they need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So in order for you to repent, you need to ne- understand what you need to repent of. And what you need to repent of is what? Not that you physically took someone's life, unless you really did, of course. But what you need to repent of is what? That your entire life was spent doing what? Regularly finding yourself getting angry. Regularly doing what? Insulting people. And regularly doing what? Effectively telling people they're fools. Does that sound like anybody we know? Does it sound like anybody we know? Like, what I mean by that is, does it sound like anybody that maybe is sitting in the same chair you're sitting in? Does it sound like somebody like, that I know pretty well that's behind a, behind a, a lectern right now? Yeah. That sounds like me. And although I don't hang around with you guys every moment of every day, can I just tell you, that is you. It is. It was probably you today before you even got here. And that's the point of the text. That means we're liable to judgment. We're liable to being brought before the council. We're liable 
to hell of fire. Verse 23, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. Be, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. It's an interesting statement. <clears throat> and again, like we said before, elsewhere in the Scriptures you can find statements of 3-12 through 12 that are clearly statements of how we ought to live as believers. And the same way, verse 23 and 24, you can find, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and a variety of other texts that will communicate the same thought. But the point of this text is much greater than this. And much more important than this. Because the, the point of the text, again, is to call for repentance in the hearer. So what is going on with Jesus when He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar First be, and go, and first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. What's Jesus driving towards here? You know what Jesus is driving towards here? It is this. To the hearers of this message, how much time has gone by? How much water has gone under the bridge? And you all know what I mean by that. To put it more specifically, we must understand 23 and 24 this way. It's in effect Jesus is saying, I want you to ask yourself this question. How often in the life that you have, have you been angry with someone? It's not redemptive anger. How often have you insulted somebody? How often have you called someone a fool, or any other type of derogatory term. It's not just isolated to the word fool. How often has your anger towards someone been demonstrated in these ways? And once that's established, verse 22, then we come to 23 and 24, and the point of 23 and 24 is this. How many times have you brought offerings to God And your brother had something against you. And you went ahead and offered. How many times have you not went and been reconciled? How many times have you not sought that out? That's the point. Is this a statement, a command? Yes, it is. But it has to cause the listener to ask that major question, I'm 62 years old. If I'm a Jew, in Jesus' day, how many animals have I slaughtered? How many sacrifices have I been to? How many times have I been to the temple and brought the lamb to be slain. And as I stood there at that railing with a priest on that side and me on this side and I had my sheep there and the, and the priest came to me to take that leash from me and I reached under the railing and handed him that sheep so he could slaughter 
that lamb for me. And as I'm doing that, I'm angry with my brother. And I'm reminded of that anger that is there. How many times have I reached under and handed that leash, that rope, to the priest and he took that lamb to its slaughter and I did not deal with my sin. How many times did I let that fester? How many times did I minimize that? How many times did I excuse that? When you start to think about that, that gets overwhelming, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Isn't that overwhelming? I mean, I'm 62. I don't care if you're 10, 5. It's overwhelming. If we start to think about how many times, lay aside the Jewishness of it, now our sacrifice is sacrifice of praise. We sang three songs this morning already. And the scriptures call them sacrifices of praise. And we come to church and we don't even think about the things that need to be dealt with. We come to church and we don't even think about the anger that's been in my heart this week. We don't even think about the insults we've said to people's faces or behind their backs. We don't even think about the derogatory things we've said. You know what Jesus is saying? It's all just murder in your heart. It's a bloodless murder. It's all it is. There's a bloody murder and a bloodless murder, but ultimately they're both murder. And we have come, even this morning, and we have sung songs and offered offerings of praise. We turn on our radio, perhaps, and we listen to songs of praise and we sometimes will sing along with them and we don't even take into account. Do we? We just don't. And so if we slow down and think about it, what do we have here? Yes, Jesus is giving a command. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember, how scary is it we're so used to it. This is what gets really scary. We're so used to being angry. We're, still, we're so used to insulting. We're so used to being derogatory that we can come and we can sing corporately songs of praise, offerings of praise to God. We don't even think about all, all the stuff that went on. It doesn't even show up. We're so used to it. It doesn't even show up. It doesn't even pop into our minds. And you ask yourself, just to make it really clear, when's the last time you came to church to offer a sacrifice of praise? Because we don't sacrifice animals anymore. When's the last time you came to church to offer up a sacrifice of praise, and you said to yourself, ah, I need to go make a phone call. Oh my goodness, I need to go see someone. 
doesn't even pop in our brains, does it? Or if it does show up, this moment of guilt, what do we do with it? What do we do? We bury it. We subdue it. We suppress it. We ignore it. Don't we? And we think somehow, some way, that God will do what? He will join with us and do what? Suppress it. And ignore it. Excuse it. Minimize it. Isn't that what we do? First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He goes on in verse 25 and he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you'll be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And remember what I said in the very beginning, this is eschatological. This is not merely horizontal. Not talking about a human judge at all. Let's go back to the illustration. Charles has something against me. Jesus is not saying Come to quick terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to him, uh, while you're going to him uh, with him to court. It's not that Charles is taking me to court. Because ultimately, do I sin against Charles? If, if, if Charles has something against me, do I, is it ultimately Charles that has someone against, something against me? The answer is no. What did David say in Psalm 51 after committing sin with Bathsheba? What did he say? Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's talking to God. And that's what he said. Against you and you, what? Only have I sinned. That's a radical statement, isn't it? You know why against you and you only have I sinned? Because God is the lawgiver. And when you break the law, you have sinned against the lawgiver. It may evidence itself towards Charles or for David towards Bathsheba. It's the means where it's evidenced. But ultimately, I've sinned when I sin only against God. So if Charles has something against me and it's legitimate, it's because I've sinned against Charles? No, I've sinned against God because he's the lawgiver. He's the standard. Is he not? He absolutely is. So in that case, what is Jesus talking about here? He's using what happens every day, but he's talking about something eschatological. So when he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser, who's the accuser? God is the accuser. He's the accuser. Come quickly, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, and it's God's courtroom lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and God's the judge, and the judge to the guard, and who's the guard, of course? God's the guard, because you can never escape God's judgment, and you'd be put in prison. Now, verse 26, it says, Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Now, I only owe Charles a thousand bucks. I don't, but if I did, he was hoping. 
I mean, I could probably figure out ways to get a thousand bucks and pay them off, right? And get out pretty quick, right? Which takes this text to almost meaninglessness. But the call is to repent. Why? Because the kingdom of Charles is at hand, right? Right? No! It's because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus being the king of the kingdom of heaven, he's at hand. He's also the judge of the kingdom of heaven. And judgment is at hand. And if my sin is not primarily against Charles, but it's really against God, and if the accusation really isn't against Charles or from Charles, but it's from God, then suddenly everything changes, doesn't it? Because now it's no longer a thousand bucks, is it? Because ultimately the curses of God for disobedience are not paying back a thousand dollars, is it? So when he says, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you paid the last penny, guess what? You're never going to pay it. You'll be paying it off for how long? For eternity. And so Jesus is calling clearly in 21 through 26 what? Repent quickly before the judge gets on his on the seat, right? You better repent. <laughs> you better deal with your accuser pretty quick. Because pretty soon your accuser is going to be the judge. And when he's the judge, he's going to turn you over to the to the guard. And he's the guard. And he's going to make sure you're where? In prison till you pay off every debt. And what's the prison he's talking about? The prison he's talking about is the end of verse 22. Hellfire. That's the whole package. Now why do we bring this text up? Well, because we're working through the text, of course. But what's the point of the text? The point of the text is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we know, right? For unbelievers, what do they need to do? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We know that, right? I mean, it's pretty clear. So what do we do with this? If we are believers, what do we do with this? Well, it's, it's twofold. Let me just share it with you real quick. Do you get the sense in reading this text from 417 onwards so far, do you get the sense that Jesus is pretty serious about this? Do you get the sense that Jesus is pretty, pretty passionate about this? Do you get the sense He's pretty inflamed about this? If you don't, you've got a really hard heart. I mean, it's pretty passionate to Jesus, isn't it? Perhaps, if I may say it this way, as a believer, perhaps one of the greatest things we can draw out of this text <clears throat> is not even that we need to repent for our anger that has showed up regularly. For the insults we've hurled behind people's backs into their face. 
for all the derogatory things we've said. I, I, clearly the text <laughs> says that, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But perhaps we need to drill behind it a little bit. We need to realize that even behind all this that we've seen so far, perhaps the greatest repentance we need is a repentance of flipping it. Flippy, being flippant. I couldn't even think of the word. Being flippant with the things that Jesus is so passionate about. Do you hear it there? Not just in 21 through 26, but in 3 through 12. Verse 13. Verse 14 through 16. 17 through 20. You hear it every section, don't you? Don't you hear it? Now, do unbelievers need to repent of all these things? Yes. Do they need to hear these things? Yes. Do they need to recognize these things? Do they need to recognize eschatologically what's coming? Yes. Does God use means? And yet we've been so flippant about that, haven't we? As people who claim to be believers, are we not flippant about that? Aren't we casual about that? He's so passionate about this. And he's calling lost people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is he not? For someone who claims to be a believer, <clears throat> Perhaps we need to ask ourselves, well, certainly we need to ask ourselves, do, are we still sinning these ways? And the answer is, yes, we are. We're not meek at absolute perfection, are we? We're not poor in spirit, are we? We don't mourn like is described. <clears throat> do we hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake? Like is described with absolute perfection? Are we merciful like is described by Jesus? Pure in heart? Peacemakers? Go on and on and on. No, 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 no. Not even as believers. Now praise the Lord. And I don't want to minimize it. Praise the Lord we have His righteousness, right? And we're judged according to His righteousness, not ours. That's clear in the Scriptures. Amen and amen. I will be judged based upon an alien righteousness that's been given me, not mine. Right? But too often we, we're banking on it, aren't we? We're banking on an alien righteousness and we become flippant. We become casual. And we become cold. And we become hard. And we find ourselves no longer passionate about what Jesus is passionate about. We find ourselves no longer <clears throat> inflamed with what Jesus inf is inflamed about. We find ourselves no longer grieving over what Jesus is grieving about. We find ourselves no longer joyful about what Jesus is joyful about.
perhaps that's one of the greatest takeaways we could take away from this text. Not so much that we need to repent of our anger and all the rest of that we do. But even as believers, we need the gospel, don't we? I desperately need to hear the gospel today. The bad news of the gospel. You know what this text reminds me of? <clears throat> it reminds me what I've been saved from. It reminds me what I needed to be saved from. It reminds me of how horribly re reprobate I really was. It reminds me of how absolutely rebellious I was. It reminds me of how absolutely I hated God. I despised Him. I rejected Him. I went my own way. And in doing so, I find that it grieves me. That I find myself regularly still doing that. I still need to hear the gospel. I still need to be reminded of the gospel. And not just the good news of the gospel. Do you realize that? Not just the good news of the gospel. You know, that I'm heaven bound. That Jesus saved me. That he's preparing a place for me. And that he's coming back to take me to where he is so that I will be with him forever. And those are great things. That I'm an, I'm an inheritor. That I'm adopted. That I'm grafted in. That I, I, I have my life in him. That my life is hidden with Christ in God. And we can go on and on and on. That I have an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, and isn't fading away, reserved in heaven for me. And those are all great things, aren't they? And those are good, the good news of the good news, isn't it? And then I'm reminded in the back of my mind, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. And the eyes pop open a little bit. And then I'm reminded of the parable of the four soils. And my eyes pop open a little bit more. And then I'm reminded of Demas. And now I'm kind of terrified. And then I'm reminded of all the churches in Asia that left, left Paul and therefore left Jesus. And now I'm starting to quake. Does that make sense? Because I need to hear the bad news of the gospel too, don't I? Why? Because Hebrews says, be after today while it's still when? Still what? Today, so that you don't get within you an evil, hard, or cold heart. Because ultimately, that will demonstrate that all you were doing was sampling. Right? And that's why we're still alive. We need to hear the gospel. And we need not to, just to hear the good side of the gospel. We need to be reminded of the bad news of the good news. And I need to, just as I did when I first was saved, I need to be crying out, God, please be merciful to me. What? A sinner. Don't I? I absolutely do. Because when I read even 21 through 26, I'm done. It's bad news of the gospel. I'm done. Because I'm not what he describes I should be. And the only way I get to, 
There is now therefore no condemnation. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. The only way I get there is if I find myself first saying, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free? And the only way I can say, O wretched man that I am, is if I am rehearsing and reminding myself all the time of the bad news of the good news. Do you realize that? It's the only hope I have. Because it reminds me of Jesus. And it brings me back to Him. If the Spirit's at work in my life. And that's what I need. I don't need to do better. I don't need just to not be angry. I don't need to just not throw insults. I don't need just to make sure I don't curse people. I don't need just make sure that I get away from the altar and go deal with things first. I need to be reminded I'm a desperate person. And I cannot do this. I need Jesus. There's no other reason why, G why Paul would say always grieving and always rejoicing. I'm always grieving because of the bad news of the gospel. I'm always rejoicing. Why? Because the good news of the gospel. No, no grieving. There's no real rejoicing. It's just like useless. But when I see the bad news of the gospel and are reminded that Christ's blood was applied to me, everything changes. And I just want more of Jesus. And you know what? By the Spirit's work in me, I find myself doing what? persevering to the end because he's at work in me both the will and the work for his good pleasure so this week our task is not to make sure we don't get angry our task is to remind ourselves of the bad news of the gospel as well as the good news of the gospel and find ourselves as a result repenting crying out for god to open our eyes to see that he would break our hearts remind us always remind us of the bad as well as the good. Because the way I lived even this morning is why Christ died. Do you realize that? And the way you lived this morning is why Christ died. <laughs> Not just the way you lived a long time ago. And the way you li live when you leave here is the reason why Christ died. We can't measure up. We just can't. We need his mercy. It's not up to the one who wills or works. Paul says in Romans, but it's up to the one who shows mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he will be merciful. Will he not? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us. <coughs> we desperately need to be reminded we desperately need your spirit to work in us because without your spirit at work in us, we are nothing but chaff that the wind drives away. We have no hope to stand in, in the judgment. We need a righteousness that's not our own. And so, Lord, I pray you'll help us to re remember. Remember the bad news of the gospel and also remember the good news of the gospel and the the one who is the good news of the gospel, Jesus Christ. 
to glorify yourself in our lives, in our hearts this week. We ask you to inflame our hearts with what inflames you. We ask your spirit to work mightily in us. In your name I pray, amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we?